Heavenly Father, it's uh, truly a gift that we can gather here on this day that belongs to you. And as Kirk already said, we believe that every Sunday is a Resurrection Sunday. And we recognize that. But how special it is, Lord, knowing that millions throughout the world have gathered on this day to stop and to recognize the life, death, and specifically the resurrection of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that in light of this truth, that you would do a work that only you can do by your Spirit, that you would transform us even this hour, that we might reflect his image more perfectly. We know that one day, Lord, we will see him face to face and become as he is, that we too will be glorious as Christ is glorious. And until then, Father, use this time to magnify yourself by changing us into his glorious image. Help us to see clearly, Father, that the resurrection of your Son is real and that apart from it, Lord, we have no faith. Help us to see, Father, clearly the resurrection that we will enjoy as a result of your grace through faith in us. And then, Lord, with that firm picture in mind, I pray that we would live radical lives. Lives centered upon your Son, fixed upon His glory each and every day. Lord, I pray that you would bless all your children who have gathered throughout churches throughout the world today, Father, as they celebrate. Give us great courage this day. Fill us with a great sense of joy this day, knowing that as we just had a chance to sing that you will not leave us in the grave. That is not the end of our story. Our story is infinitely better. I pray you would help me tell it well today in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Your story in Christ is infinitely better than the story the world wants to paint for you. Last year, during this time, many churches were closed. Many Christians were gathered via live stream or some were doing the, the drive-up theater style. I read that 52% of evangelicals this year are saying, we're going to go to church. We're, we're going to meet in person in church. I praise God for that. And most of you know that Easter is marked and has been marked by Christians for centuries to recognize and celebrate the historical fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Even though he was crucified upon a Roman cross, put into a grave for three days, on that third day in fulfillment of the scriptures, he rose bodily and is alive and now reigns. 20 years after Jesus' resurrection, the Apostle Paul affirms this by testifying to all the eyewitnesses who were still alive. Listen to what he said. If you're in 1 Corinthians 15, pop your eyes up to verse 4. Paul wants to confirm this historical fact. He said, Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried, and raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Verse 5, and he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as prophesied in the Old Testament, revealed in the New Testament, historically validated, Paul says here, by all those who were still alive, is an historical fact. 
There's no room in the Christian faith to question or deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But what is it about this historical fact that has had such a profound impact on millions of people for 2,000 years? There are many incredible historical events that we could stop and recognize as important and maybe even celebrate. Some of them we do. But why Resurrection Sunday? Why Easter? What is it about Easter that draws people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to gather like this and listen to the hope of a resurrected Savior? I do believe that we do this at least once a year because if Christ rose from the dead, then maybe there's hope that we can too. If in fact this God-man rose from the dead, overcoming the power of sin and death, then maybe, maybe, we have a chance of beating death as well. Jesus said, if you remember that great dialogue with Martha in John chapter 11, he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will what? Will never die. He will have eternal life. In other words, my beloved, we're gathered here. I pray you're gathered here. Not just to recognize and celebrate the historical fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. You've gathered here because this is personal. This is exceedingly personal. His resurrection means that you have the hope of being resurrected too. It means the consequences of sin and death do not have to be the end of your story. It means that the grave does not have to be where your body remains forever. Now, grievously, there are millions of people in churches in this great land this day gathered in churches just like this who do not believe that Jesus Christ actually physically bodily rose from the dead. They say it's a great story, maybe a myth, ancient parable, an ethical teaching. I'm not sure what the ethical teaching is of that. There are millions more who believe that he rose from the dead but do not have eternal life. They have not put their faith and trust in this resurrected Savior. And so they're participating in a religion that has no power to transform them now or deliver them from the grave for eternity. So this Resurrection Sunday, I want to I look at some verses here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Corinth. They were struggling with the idea of a bodily resurrection too. Not unlike many today. And from this letter, I, I want you to see just a few basic things. I want you to see of the absolute importance that Jesus Christ did in fact rise from the dead, that we cannot forsake that basic doctrinal truth. And then I want you to see that it can change you personally. A true belief and understanding of the resurrection of Christ and the hope of your future resurrection can actually change you. So the theme of your sermon is this, the resurrection must be personal to be transformative. It must be personal to transform you from the inside out. And so I want to look at 1 Corinthians 15 by looking at these three things. One, the necessity of the resurrection. Two, the work of the resurrection. And three, the power. The necessity of the resurrection. Why do we have to have it? Number two, the work of the resurrection. What is the impact on us? Immediate, real, eternal impact. And number three, how does it change us? Does it give us any power? And the answer is yes, much.
Do I have your attention? All right. So I want us to focus on God's Word. Number one, the necessity of the resurrection. You know, we often read these New Testament letters and we think that those that Paul was writing to were so much different than we are. They were not. There were many in Corinth who either doubted or they spiritualized the belief in the resurrection. When, when Jesus was ministering, especially in Jerusalem, he ran into some of the religious leaders called Sadducees. And the Sadducees did not believe in a bodily resurrection. In fact, the Sadducees went so far as they didn't believe the soul continued after death. That was truly a dead perspective on Christianity. The Corinthians likely believed the soul. Many believed the soul continued on. They were shaped by Plato, obviously more than the New Testament at this point in time. And so they thought that the soul had to be separated from the body because the body's material and the, body, the, the material world is impure and therefore the soul had to be separated and therefore set free. Now, I want to be perfectly clear. When I'm using the word resurrection in the context of 1 Corinthians 15, as Paul is, he's talking about a physical, bodily resurrection from the dead. It's not spiritualized. It's not spirit. Anastasis is the Greek word, and it literally means to rise up or to physically stand up. According to the scriptures, we know the soul never dies, so there's no purpose for your soul to be resurrected. Your soul always lives on, but your body does die. Your physical body dies. And therefore, according to God's plan, it's right for your body to rise. In fact, we know this. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to what? Your mortal bodies. Not your soul, but your body. Through his spirit who dwells in you. So the Corinthians had become confused on this. A lot of aberrant teachings coming in from outside. So Paul then, he says, all right, I got to make this crystal clear. And I don't, if you know Christ and the Holy Spirit dwells in you, you can read through 1 Corinthians 15 and you're going to go, oh, I got what he's saying. And he appeals to the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the foundation of this teaching. And he says, listen, you as a believer in Christ cannot believe that Christ did not rise. In fact, look at verse 12 with me. Paul's going to make a very simple, logical argument here about the resurrection of Christ and therefore our own resurrection. Verse 12, Paul says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, and he said we've already established that by multiple witnesses, over 500. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Remember, the believer what? We profess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our heart that God what? raised Christ from the dead. You cannot profess Christ and hesitate for a moment in believing that Jesus is still in the tomb. You cannot. Look at verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. My beloved, if Christ has not been raised, I need to step down immediately and you, we all need to go someplace and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die and there is no hope after that. If that is true. To deny the resurrection is to deny the resurrection of Jesus. To deny the resurrection of Jesus is to deny the very essence of the Christian faith. My beloved, 
How can we put our faith in a resurrected Savior if we don't believe the Savior has been raised? It's nonsense, and Paul's making that point. Verse 16, look. If the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That's the death blow right there. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then you're still in your sins. If you're still in your sins, we're still dead. If Christ has not been raised from the tomb, then you're still in the tomb. You're still dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, Paul says. And therefore, apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all of this is worthless. Vanity upon vanity. It's sin, my beloved, that brought the separation of the body and soul in Genesis chapter 3. It's sin that separated us from the living God. It's sin that brought spiritual and physical death. The only reason we have physical death, the only reason we're talking about the necessity of the resurrection is because sin brought death and does to this very hour. It keeps us, sin keeps us from being reunited with God and your body and soul being reunited for all eternity. Apart from Christ raising from the dead, being raised from the dead, you have no hope but only, listen, Hebrews 10, 27, a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. No resurrection of Jesus, no gospel. No gospel, no hope. Only judgment. But, you got to wait for those, don't you? But, if Christ physically rose from the dead, as prophesied to hundreds of times in the Old Testament, as, t- as revealed in the New Testament, as testified historically by real people in real space and real time, then that means, listen, here's your great hope. You, church, those who belong to Jesus Christ, if Christ rose from the dead and you're in Christ, then guess what? You must rise. You must rise too. If you're in Christ, you cannot stay dead because your Savior lives bodily. Look at verse 21. For by a man came death, for as by a man came death, speaking of Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, speaking of Christ. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In other words, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and you being in Christ, God the Son established an unbreakable union between you and Him. Verse 23, Christ is the first fruit. We don't get that. The first harvest, the first portion of the harvest. He's the first fruit, the first one to rise. Then at His coming, those who belong to Christ will what? We will rise too in bodily form. When Adam was our federal head, And he sinned against God. He brought the curse of Genesis 3 upon all mankind. Listen, Genesis 3.19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return physical death. But now, by God's grace through faith, if you're in Christ, you have a new federal head, you have the second Adam, you have the better Adam, you have the Son Jesus Christ. And because the second Adam, the better Adam, has raised, so too must we be raised. So my beloved, 
our faith, our hope. I'll go so far as to say the entire Christian understanding of salvation by grace through faith is contingent upon and grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You cannot budge on that doctrine. There's no gray area. There's no inner dialogue within the church. Forsake the resurrection. Forsake the gospel. We're not going to be some ethereal spiritual beings that roam around the universe in bodiless form. Yeah, that is a grievous thought. Your soul's not going to be independent of your body for all eternity. The promise of the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is that you, listen, whole man, you whole women, your body, your soul, will be reunited with God in Christ forever. And that's what we want. That's how God designed us. God created us before the fall, body and soul, to love and to relate to Him, to each other, and to His creation. And so we, His church, will require a body and soul for all eternity to do the same. You're going to need your body and your soul in eternity to worship God, to relate to God, to relate to one another, and to relate to His creation. My beloved, if we have not learned the importance of the physical presence of a person over this past year, maybe we're never going to learn it. To have to enjoy, to relish in sweet intimacy and relationships, it requires proximity. It requires physical proximity. We've all all suffered from it. I still think we're kind of in a malaise from it, trying to figure out how do we do this again. I don't know about you, but I'm so tired of Zoom. Oh, If I never Zoomed again before my body was raised, I'd be a very, very happy man. Tired of Zoom, tired of FaceTime. Why am I tired of it? It doesn't cut it. You can't get close. You can't see, you can't smell, you can't taste, you can't touch. That's not relationship. That's not relationship as God made us to relate. Abby and Ellie, my two granddaughters, were quarantined for 35 days, caught in this very strange cycle. For 35 days... Now, we're used to seeing them a couple times a week, exceedingly blessed as grandparents. We Zoomed, we FaceTimed, we stood out the window and talked and had little animals and tried to maintain the relationship. Now, Abby's only two, and she's like, what is going on here? She kept trying to open the door, like, get in here, come in. As a two-year-old, she realized this two-dimensional virtual reality is not real. It's not how we relate Now, my beloved, if we couldn't figure out how to do this in 12 months, how would we ever do it for all eternity? How would we ever have soul without the body relating to God, each other, and creation without the body? Not possible. We know that. Certainly this year has testified to it. The entire plan, God's entire creation, fall, redemption, restoration plan involves body and soul forever and ever. Your physical body. Your physical body. The resurrection of His Son and the resurrection of His people. Real people in real bodies worshiping and serving a real physical Savior on a real earth. 
That's what the Bible tells us. So first, I pray that we see there is, there's no Christianity apart from the resurrection of the dead. There's no hope, there's no gospel unless your body and soul be reunited by God to worship a resurrected bodily Savior forever and ever. Amen? Do we have that? Do not forsake that doctrine for a minute lest you forsake the gospel itself. Okay, number two, then what's the impact of this? What is the impact of the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ on those of us who believe? I'm not talking about believing that he actually rose from the dead. I'm talking about believing as entrusting him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. What is the work of the resurrection? Paul teaches with crystal clarity here that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, listen, the Son of God overcame once and forever the power of sin and death. Look at verse 56. You heard it read. By the way, these are verses you should probably read to yourself once a week, especially as you get older. Amen, Amen that's right. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Thanks be to God, you have victory over sin, victory over death, victory over the grave because Christ has won. Because Christ beat death. All who repent and believe and are in Christ, we will beat death too. Your body will never stay in the grave. Now here's a confession for you. When I was a younger pastor, I would preside over memorial services and there was very little thought of my body in the casket or my body in the grave. It's not that I was being insensitive, but it just didn't, I didn't picture myself there. With each passing year and as my body continues to fail, when I do memorial services now, when I stand beside the gravesite and I see the dirt, the fresh dirt, I picture my body in the casket, and I picture my body in the grave. And the only thing, listen, the only thing that brings me comfort from the, the thought of the darkness of the casket and the chill of the grave is the victory that I have in Christ. That's it. Otherwise, I'd never go to a funeral. I would never stand by a grave if I thought that's my end, and that's it. Because Christ was victorious. I can say with the Apostle Paul, look at verse 40, 54, the last part. I can say with Paul, death is swallowed up in victory. I can taunt death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? I can say that, and you can too if you're in Christ. No fear of death. No fear of the grave, because that's not your final place. Not your final place. Now, the question for many in Corinth, remember, they're struggling with this whole idea of, of bodily resurrection. Paul asks it rhetorically in verse 35. He says, well, what kind of bodies will we enjoy? What's it going to look like? For 2,000 years, the church has talked about this, and there's been lots of crazy dialogue around it. We do know some things because Paul gives us some great teaching here in chapter 15. Many of the Corinthians actually thought the idea was reprehensible, not only because they, they thought the spirit was pure and the physical world was contaminated, but some of them likely thought that it was just a reanimation of the body. In other words, how you go in is how you come out. Nah, I don't know about you. I do not want to come out like this. I better have something better. I better be upgraded, right? There better be another addition coming out. 
If they thought that, then they were thinking incorrectly. And so Paul wants to, he wants to challenge that. Some of them actually probably thought it wasn't even a human body. That it was something other than that. A resurrected body is what Paul teaches us clearly here. And I don't want this teaching to just be interesting to you. This teaching should change your faith and your work. It should actually increase your faith and it should increase your work if this teaching is true and you really, really believe it. So will you be resurrected in human form? If you've watched any TV or movies over the past 30, 40 years, you probably, some of you probably think, well, I'm going to come back as an angel. Then I've got to do good work to get my wings, right? Just like Clarence, right? You're not going to come back as an angel. You're not going to come back as an animal either. You're not going to come back as a tiger. You're not going to come back as a distant planet, right? There's so much crazy dialogue out there about what it's going to be. We know from the creation account, and Paul affirms it here, that God gave each creature a body in accordance with its being. He matches body and being. In fact, look at verse 39. Paul brings this out. He says, not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. In other words, the body must match the nature, right? I mean, that makes sense. If a butterfly in the body of a horse, that's not a butterfly, right? A fish in the body of a dog is no longer a fish. And so too with you. A man, a woman, must be in the form of a human being in order to be a man or a woman. Now, now, and forever. In fact, Jesus, he reveals this to us perfectly, did he not? In his, prior to his ascension, in his revelation to the disciples and the 500 others, and then even after his ascension, he revealed himself to the apostle Paul. How was he revealed? As a human being recognizable human form. In fact, if you remember in John chapter 21, after the resurrection, during that 40-day period of time before he ascended, his disciples are out, they're fishing. It's such a great story, and poof, here's Jesus on the beach, right, in physical form. And he calls out to them, there's this great commotion, great story with Peter, but he, he, he sits down and says, let's have some breakfast. He says, well, how can he have breakfast? He can have breakfast because he has a body. He can eat. He can swallow. He can cook. Yes, because he prepared it. You're right. In verse 12 of John 21, listen to this. It says, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. How did they know? He was recognizable in his human body. They knew it was him because it looked like him because, oh, it was him. It was him. You will be, you'll be recognizable too, my beloved. Your body, your soul. You're going to know yourself and others are going to know you. Glorified, better, much improved without sin, but you will be known. You'll have a human body. You'll be fully recognizable. But at the same time, you will not be the same. You will not be the same. For my Marvel fans, those of you enjoying the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, if you are turning into that new series, and you might be encouraged to know, you know, these super soldiers that are running out there that Sam and, and Bucky are trying to fight against, the ones with all those superhuman powers. You do know that you and your glorified state 
are going to be infinitely more powerful than they. When you watch them, you think, oh, man, that's incredible. You will be in your glorified state infinitely more powerful, infinitely more glorious than they. How do I know that? Look at verse 36. Paul says, he says so lovingly here, right? You foolish person. He's criticizing them for their, their uh, perverted view of the resurrection. He says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Look at verse 37. And what you sow is not the body that is to be. It's not going to be the same. It will be physical. You will be recognizable. It will be your soul, but you're going to be so different. Look at verse 42. How different. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. In other words, Paul teaches there's going to be continuity, soul and body, and there's going to be radical discontinuity because you're going to be transformed to such a degree that you will say as you read this, that's too good to be true. Oh, but Paul wants you to get it. Because if you get it, it'll increase your faith. Can I look at these briefly with you? We read through that and we say, yes, perishable, imperishable, dishonor, glory. Can I just a little bit with you? I won't, I won't go three hours, I promise. But I want you to listen. Because these are amazing. And it's the word of God, so it's true. First, Paul says, your new bodies will be imperishable. You know what that means? You're not going to be susceptible to anything any longer that destroys or decays your physical body. No longer, no corruption, no disease, no death. You're imperishable. Now, in our current bodies, when God takes you home, your soul will leave temporarily. Your body, your body will go in the grave. And one of the reasons that we bury people so quickly is because that body does not do well without a soul. Bacteria sets in quickly, and the body begins to decay rapidly so much so we have to get it in the grave or refrigeration very quickly or we become a crumpled mess i would say that life in many ways every single day is a battle not to perish is it not we're always in that mode we eat we sleep we take medicine we exercise we get vaccines trying to limit the perishing process but we know that that end is coming we know that In your new body, listen, in your new body, you will be imperishable. No COVID-19 concerns. None. You'll never think about sheltering in place. No need for vaccines. No accidents. No cancer. No arthritis. No dementia. Nothing. Listen, but perfect, pain-free health and vitality forever and ever. Now, if you're younger, you're going, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Listen to me. When you get older, you're going to say, yes. No more arthritis, no more dementia. Yes. It's such a glorious truth. Paul says, secondly, your new body will be glorious. Look at verse 43. What is sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. And i got to say, this is my favorite. Glory is something that excites wonder and admiration and delight. According to the Bible, the bodies, the physical bodies of God's people will be fashioned after the likeness of Christ's glorified body. Listen to Paul in Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, 
And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, listen with all your might, transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Do you remember Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, Paul, and, and Peter, John, and James? Do you remember? Do you remember? We're told in Matthew chapter 17, verse 2, that his face shone like the sun, <laughs> and his clothes became white as light. The Bible says that when he comes again in glory, that the heavens and the earth are going to flee. That's how glorious Christ is. Now look at verse 49. Paul says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, we shall, in our new bodies, we shall bear the image of the man of heaven, that's Jesus. You know what that means? No more makeup. No more diets. No more exercise. No more hairstyles that you got to spend so much time styling. No more fancy clothes that you need to go out and buy or tailor. No more jewelry needed. You've heard the term natural beauty. She's a natural beauty. Well, listen. In Christ, each and every one of you are going to be a supernatural beauty, inside and out. So glorious that if you were to come back and appear right now, authors would write books and books and books about you because you'd be so glorious. 1 John 3, 2, Jesus said this. John said this. Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You will be glorious as Christ is glorious. You're going to be imperishable. You're going to be glorious. Number three, Paul says, verse 43, latter part, you're going to be powerful. What was sown in weakness will be raised in power. You don't have to live a few years on this planet to realize how weak we are as creatures. I mean, we are. We're strangely weak. I mean, just look at this past year and, and mankind trying to handle this pandemic. Not doing it so well because we are weak in many ways. The older I get, I don't know about you, but my, my retention skills decrease. My calculation skills decrease. My phone is truly a smartphone because I need it to think. I'm wearing glasses. Why am I wearing glasses? This is not a fashion statement. I'm wearing glasses because I can't see my paper unless I have them on. My body is perishing. My senses are perishing. I need these glasses because I have, I have one lens per eye not working that well. You know that, a, you know that a, a, a honeybee, a worker honeybee, has 5,500 lenses per eye? How do you think they see? Certainly better than I'm seeing right now. My youngest son Joshua and I always go back and forth about who could win in a foot race. I still think I can. I still think I can. I still think I can. Yeah. It doesn't match much. The cheetah can run 70 miles per hour. 70 miles per hour. The peregrine falcon can, can dive at 200 miles per hour. And a gorilla, an average gorilla, can lift 5,400 pounds, 10 times their body weight. So compared to even God's other creatures, we're not all that strong. We're not all that powerful. But in your glorified body, listen, I believe that your, your senses are all going to be heightened to a degree that you could not even imagine now. 
maybe have new senses. I don't know. I don't know. I do know that your cognitive abilities will not be hampered by sin. So you will be able to understand and comprehend the majesty and the beauty and the glory of God forever and ever. And as you do that, you will enjoy Him and love Him. Oh my goodness, my beloved. The ability to love without limitation. The ability to serve without reservation. The ability to relate to one another with no barriers of any kind. That's power. I think it's sufficient to say that Whatever your expectations are of your new glorified body reigning with Christ upon the throne are infinitely too low. Paul said at the beginning of this letter in chapter 2, listen, he said, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Can't even imagine it. So whatever you imagine, still too low. Paul says you're going to have a spiritual body. We're sown natural bodies, we'll be raised spiritual bodies. That doesn't mean non-physical. It means that the Holy Spirit, listen, will dwell in you perfectly. Our bodies right now are made for a physical realm. But when God brings the kingdom to earth, we're going to have to have bodies that are unable to last and live in the spiritual realm too. And so your spirit, listen, The Spirit of God will dwell in you perfectly. No more flesh and spirit battle. No more Romans chapter 7, old man, new man, old woman, new woman. You're going to be perfectly indwelt by the Holy Spirit and then perfectly able, listen, perfectly able to worship God forever. No barrier of any kind. No struggle, no temptation, no battle with the conscience. Instead, complete unity in the Spirit. A spiritual body. He gives us one more, and I think... It's imperative in light of Resurrection Sunday. You'll be imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual, and the last one, immortal. Look at verse 53. For this perishable body, this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Now, immortality is a higher degree, a higher understanding of just being imperishable. Imperishable means you're just not going to suffer decay. Immortality means that you're going to live forever. Forever and ever. It means enjoying God, enjoying one another, and enjoying God's creation in your glorified body, imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual body forever and ever and ever. You see, the reason that the sting of death is so difficult for us to even talk about is because it weighs upon man's conscience. Every single person, listen, every single person, saved or unsaved, knows that we were made to live forever. We know that. That's why we fight against the pain. We fight against the suffering. That's why we hate death so much. Why do you think funerals are so hard for us? Why do people mourn and weep at memorial services? Universally speaking, Because we know, listen, we know deep down that's not how we were made. We were made for something infinitely better. We were made for something forever and ever. And so death is rightly, it's reprehensible to the human mind. It's inconceivable for many of us. And so what do we do? We lie about it. We we create stories about it. We try to dismiss it, minimize it. I think most of us just don't think about it. Well, maybe it won't happen to me. 
Odds are against you. You have Enoch, Elijah, Jesus. Odds are against you. So we do our best to forget it because we know deep down that immortality is how we are supposed to be. But again, look at verse 54. Death has been swallowed up in victory by Christ. And therefore, all who belong to him will reign forever and ever in your imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual body. In fact, I would argue that none of those other qualities would mean anything if you weren't going to live forever. Because that too would end. And how horrible would that be to taste that? To taste being imperishable. To taste the glory. To taste the spiritual body or the power and then say, oh, now it ends. It must be immortality. And if it is, my beloved, then whatever your circumstances are right now, good or bad, whatever your hardships are right now, and maybe for the remainder of your life, hardships, pain, suffering, if this If you're in Christ and this is your future and it is guaranteed because Christ rose, so too will you. If you know right now that in a matter of years, and for all of us, regardless of how young you are, it's only a matter of years compared to eternity, right? In a matter of years, you're going to receive an imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual, immortal body. If that's true, then you can hear what Paul says in verse 58, to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord without growing weary. If that is really our end and really our hope, my beloved, a glorious end necessitates a faithful, fruitful life, does it not? A glorious end necessitates that we live now a faithful and fruitful life. I have one more point, but i got to know that you're excited about the potential of your glorified body. i got to know that when you think imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual, immortal, you go, that's me in Christ. It's got to excite you, or this last point is going to fall on deaf ears. All right, last one. We see that the resurrection is necessary, the resurrection work does miraculous things to us now and forever, and then the power of the resurrection. Look at verse 56 again. I know we've read this, but we could probably read this a thousand times and not grow weary of it. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the imperative that shakes out of this entire chapter of the resurrection. Verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable always, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So what is the response to this sermon? I hope it's not just, let's go have some ham. Let's go find some eggs. The Apostle Paul says, listen, this truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and therefore your resurrection is so extravagant and so extreme and so over the top That if you believe it, I mean, he says, really believe it. If you do, then it will be utterly transformative in your life. Notice he doesn't give verse 58 as a command. It's an exhortation of love. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, in light of this truth, what? Stand firm in the gospel and abound in the work of the Lord. Oh, that's simple. And that's good. I like simple. The older I get, I need simple, right? 
I'm not in my glorified state yet. I can't remember. He says, listen, if this is true and you believe it, then you should stand firm in the faith and abound in the work of the Lord. Steadfast, he says, steadfast and immovable in the gospel. Now, the Corinthians, much like us, they're fickle. They go back and forth, this doctrine, that doctrine. But Paul argues that if you, that you get this, if you leave here today and you say, you know what, I, I think I get the resurrection better now, and I think I really believe that I'm going to be like that, Paul says that that understanding embraced in your heart and mind will keep you steadfast in the gospel until Christ comes or he draws you home. It has that kind of power. The resurrection power is your being steadfast and immovable in the gospel itself. I had a friend in college who was at 18 diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. She's a freshman, actually in her first quarter at Davis. Her doctors told her, said, listen, you've got to drop out of school right away. You've got to come home, and you have to spend two years. She was advanced in her state, two years of chemo and radiation. But they also said this. They said, listen, I mean, this wasn't the plan for your freshman year at college. But if you listen to us and you come back, you have a 90% chance of beating the cancer. 90%. I'm thankful she listened to her doctors. She dropped out of school. She went home. She spent two years in chemotherapy and radiation. At the end of that two years, guess what? She got all her hair back. The cancer was gone. And her body was healthy again. My beloved, if you remain steadfast and immovable in the gospel of grace, you procure a 100% chance of success. Not 90, 100% chance that you will receive the new glorified body we just talked about. Lots of hair, cancer-free, never die. Yeah, I like that thought. A body made to enjoy and worship God forever. So Paul says, if you get this understanding of the resurrection, you'll be able to say with him, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory in our glorified bodies that far outweigh them all, whatever they are. If you get this, saints, it'll bring a steadfastness in your faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a second thing there, and I'm going to close on this. The second result from truly believing in the resurrection of Christ and your future resurrection, your new glorified body, will be work. Abundant work. Look at verse 58 again. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. In other words, the mark of a Christian life, it's not slothfulness. It's not self-centeredness. It's not living as the world lives. It's not seeking that next degree for that next promotion, for that next house and that next car. The Bible says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And God says, I'll give all that stuff to you. Just follow me. Be faithful to me. The Christian life is embracing all the gifts and talents and resources that God has given you, and then working with them for the benefit of others. It is selflessness. It is giving. Now, I want you to know something. Paul assumes, there's an assumption here. Paul assumes that all true believers will be working for the kingdom. What he's saying here is, 
if you can grasp deeply the resurrection of Jesus Christ and your future hope, you're going to work abundantly, way more than you expect. In fact, the word here in abundant is over and above, exceedingly great, higher than any expectation. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, Jesus said this to his disciples, and I want you to listen to it in the context of abundant work. Jesus said, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, When he's come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will you not say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? And Jesus says, Does the master thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? Now listen, these words are incredible. Jesus says, So you also, speaking to the church, When you have done all that you were commanded, say this, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. We are are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. My beloved, I would say that it is your duty to minimally, minimally share the gospel with those who do not have a hope in the resurrection. That is our Christian duty, to tell those who are perishing about the hope and faith they can have in Jesus Christ. They can repent of their sins and be saved. I would say that it is our duty minimally to help those who are in this church grow in their faith, making disciples. It is our great duty to encourage one another that we might what? That we might persevere to the end. It is our great duty to be active, vibrant members of this local body, using our time, our money, our resources to bless each other and then bless this community in which we're in. These are all minimal expectations of followers of Jesus Christ. Paul comes along and he says, you get the concept of the resurrection and you won't just do minimal duty. You won't just do what the servant is commanded to do. You will go above and beyond, and you will bear fruit 30, 60, 100-fold if you get the resurrection. Why is that? My beloved, listen. If you have a clear picture of your end, the end of your story, and you look upon all those around you, those who do not know Christ, those who will perish in their sin apart from being saved, and you know the end of your story, you'll want their story to change too. If you look around at your brothers and sisters who are really struggling just to make it to the end, Christ said those who persevere to the end shall be saved. You look around and say, I want to see my brothers and sisters with me in heaven. You'll work, you'll serve, you'll sacrifice to help them get there too. In other words, a a true belief in the power of the resurrection reorients our entire mindset outward. You know your story in Christ. You know the end of your story in Christ. So you can serve. You can sacrifice. You can, if necessary, give your very life to help others change their story so they too can enjoy in the resurrection of the dead so that brothers and sisters like us can make it all the way to the end. If you don't believe the resurrection, then you might think this is the only life you have and you'll do everything you can to preserve it, right? It'll all be about you. But when you know what awaits you, you can live in such a different way. You can suffer. You can experience pain in your body. You can give until it hurts. You can minister until you're exhausted. I do believe, my beloved, it'd be really good for us to all go in the grave exhausted from service. I think we should. 
I don't think we should go into the grave well-rested. Go in exhausted. You know why? Because you're imperishable in your, in your new glorified body. You'll be glorified. All power, spiritual nature, and immortal. So we can work and we can serve and we can sacrifice now, knowing, as Paul said here, none of it's done in vain. Christ rose. If you're in Christ, you will rise too. And that means you can put all your faith and your hope in him and work abundantly now until he comes. Easter must be more. It must be more for the Christian than just recognizing and celebrating the historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead. It must be about you growing in your faith because of this great hope of a resurrected body with Christ in heaven forever and ever. And it must be about us abounding in the work of the Lord today. Amen? Our citizenship is not in heaven, Paul said. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Citizens of heaven, let's live like citizens of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I confess that these truths are almost too good to be true. If they were not said by you and written in your word that we know to be true, I'd be the first to say no way. But I know it's true and my brothers and sisters do as well. We believe your word to be infallible and perfect. And so I pray, Lord, that you would do what the Apostle Paul intended to do with the church in Corinth, that you would reaffirm and even cause to go deeper this radical understanding of the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of your son, and therefore the fact that we too must rise. And in our resurrection, Lord, we will, we will live and relate to you and to one another as imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual, immortal people. Real body, real soul, forever and ever. Lord, cause the right excitement in our hearts by your Spirit. Cause that excitement that's real so that this day you might increase our faith and cause us to abound in work. Lord, we're not asking you to do something that your word does not teach. We want to be rightly encouraged and spurred on toward love and good deeds because of the hope that we have in the resurrection of the dead. Father, I pray particularly for all those in our church who fear death, who are afraid of that grave, that they too would say with the Apostle Paul, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? We know that through Christ it has been overcome. Cause them, cause us to put our faith in him. In Jesus' name, amen.